Extras for Podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all of your comics, movies, music, games, and more, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Flowers, flowers everywhere. Why are there so many flowers? Guys, every bad guy is a flower. This is really weird. I grew up playing Mario Brothers where flowers are good things and they give you the power to spit fire at your enemies. I'm terribly confused. That makes this This Is X. I'm Nico. I'm Kyle. I'm Maddie. And I'm Jonah and we hope you survive this experience unlike my hope for where this story will be going. You know, I've been standing digital books forever, and I've been like trying to push digital books on everybody. Kyle, I've gotten you to buy some digital. Jonah, Maddie, you guys look at digital. But this week, we got to talk about Free Comic Book Day, X-Men number one, which also featured a 10-page backup by the Dark Ages creative team setting up that event. Though, you know, I really think that was supposed to be a Children of the Atom push, but with Children of the Atom being sidelined. Anyway, so X-Men Free Comic Book Day number one didn't come out in digital. That was really hard for me. I, I work Wednesdays, so that was a really real tough day for me. And I want to make a specific statement here. For many people, comic shops aren't safe right now. There's no no healthy way to be in a public group atmosphere, even if you're wearing your mask. And the other side of it is, and this is a little bit specific, but for many people of color or women, they don't necessarily feel welcome at their local, very white, cis, male-dominated, heteronormative comic shop. Now, that's not to say that there aren't many wonderful, open-minded comic shops. Two I can name up the top of my head zap comics and the geekery both in central new jersey both incredibly open-minded with incredible staffs that show the inclusion and diversity of the comic readership market but that does not mean that is everywhere and for fans who felt safe buying through the digital experience and getting their lcs chat online being forced to step out of that online discussion because you can't physically get the book. I just think this was a bit short-sighted. Yes, I want people to go back into the shops, but I would have paid $3.99 for this just to get it digitally with the money going to benefit comic shops. You know, and I feel like at $3.99 for a 10-page issue, there's a lot of room there to donate some of those proceeds to a foundation or towards research for COVID-19. Comic shop industry needs help right now, and they could be throwing that money that way throw your kitty where it goes even if they didn't want to charge people and they were still hell-bent on making this free they've given away free digital comics multiple times i don't really see what the issue was that this had to be collected in person and it wasn't available digitally it just seems really bizarre especially in this day and age where things have been the new normal for a little while now so just seems short-sighted and like tone deaf kyle you actually braved the great unknown and masked it up and superheroed your way down to one of your local shops where they were rightfully so limiting it to one per customer. Yes, I will say that Connecticut has been doing pretty well with making sure that everybody follows the rules regarding social distancing and masking up. 
And even then, it still feels weird walking into one of these small businesses where there isn't really a lot of room to move around to be distant like that. And I like that I'm able to provide support to my local comic shop. I just wish that there were alternatives for me to get this book. I agree. The last time I was at the glory hole, the social distancing policy that they were <coughs> trying to enforce with the lube guy and the towel guy, it was really difficult. I found myself constantly bumping into fluffers. Uh, oh. You know, um, <laughs> from that, we'll just say uh, thank you, Kyle, for braving the the great outdoors and the great unknown and being safe and socially responsible and getting this issue to share with us so that we can share it up with all of you at home. Oh, of course. You know, and I want to give a big shout out to X Twitter and Comics Twitter, who as soon as I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get this online at like six in the morning... <laughs> I flew onto Comics Twitter and found that X Twitter was already pretty upset about this, especially because the Dark Ages event was a dominant point of conversation for a little bit there. Especially with this age of great fan service, because like I'm not like trying to be that guy, but if you don't think that Jonathan and Hickman are serving up fan stan realness, you're just missing out on what's going on. This is like Teeny and John delivering everything the X-Men could want, down to the X-Men tarot. And like I'm not trying to be a little bit but if we take a look at Vertigo. Right? Hickman is kind of mapping Vertigo onto the X-Men. And if we kind of make an extended analogy, it's sort of the way Alan Moore Swamp Thing led to the vertigofication of DC through the lens of Sandman by Gaiman. We're kind of seeing the Kieran Gillenification of X-Men bringing it to this vertiginous place. And then the kind of like Hickman skin that we're laying onto this is this dynamic transformation. And I kind of think like the X-Men tarot, this Krakoan tarot, the future cards of mutant kind are at the heart of it. Now, let's just remember that when the tarot was created, it was a game. Tarot was not divination for a very long time, and most of its origins are in sport over mysticism. But that we are taking that and kind of revising it in a clever way really works for me. X-Men's 2020 Free Comic Book Day book was written by Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard. Pencils by Pepe Larraz, colors by Marte Gracia, lettering by VCs Clayton Cowles. Marte Gracia is killing it lately. I just wanted to take a second and run through. If anybody hasn't seen it, there was a press release uh, piece of art titled Beware the Swordbreakers of Baraka that released, I believe, the same day as Free Comic Book Day, correct, Nico? I believe so, yeah. And it revealed, I suppose, the big players, the big adversaries that we are to expect to see in the upcoming Ten of Swords events. So just to run through some of those so there's a little bit of clarity for everybody who's going to jump in the free comic book day event because again, how short-sighted is it to limit the release of something that ties in so great to an upcoming line-wide crossover? But neither here nor there. You can be sure it's going to get collected in the hardcover, the omnibus, the digital trade. You can be sure that it's going to find its home there, but there's so many people who are going to feel left out of this awesome experience. Ah, keep going. So anyhow, so everybody knows what's at stake here. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful image. Um, we've got Pog or Pog, who's a giant lizard. And I just, all of fandom has decided that is their baby boy. And like literally X Twitter has done fan art. They have started writing fanfics about him. He is their baby. Can I get a Pog in the chat, please? Uh, show me 
me your poggers. Pogares, if you are French. Slamming it. Pog squared. Uh, so we have Solemn, who's blue-skinned, talon-hooded, pretty generic. Um, we see a couple of characters that we've seen before. We see War, who we've seen the silhouette of in House of X number five. We also see the Summoner Minor from X-Men number two. There's a classified character who is a sun-faced, sort of generic Egyptian pantheon character. Another Egyptian pantheon, Death, is an Anubis stand-in. Bay the Blood Moon, who is a beetle-esque, femme, sort of genderless character. Iska the Unbeaten, who is crimson-skinned in golden armor. The White Sword, who I believe wears something of a summoner's armor, very white on white with concentric circles, carries a big old buster blade. And my favorite of all is definitely Red Root the Forest, who looks like a giant piece of Swiss shard. Uh, better a piece <laughs> of Swiss shard than gooey duck. Oh, gross. I, I do want to intersect with this because this image has my, like, my skin is electric with fire. I thought this image was one of the greatest things I've ever seen, and I just want to put my money on it now. I feel like Petra, Darwin, and X-23, when they went into that vault in X-Men number five, I wonder if they are in some way connected to this image. The oh. apocalypse horseman process usually involves some amount of physical transformation. Think about what Warren looked like before he became Archangel. If you looked at Warren in X-Factor number one, and then again in X-Factor number 24, I don't know that you would necessarily make the direct line other than male with wings. It wouldn't be shocking to me if maybe some of these reserved names and or covered iconographies are because they are in fact people we may know. Horsemen are frequently pulled from the people we may know. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but there was definitely a moment in Free Comic Book Day X-Men where I said to myself, things don't look so good for Hank. Well, things don't look so good for Hank, and that ties right back into the tarot that we're going to be covering from Free Comic Book Day X-Men number one. So, Jonah, I know you've mentioned before we covered the not only tarot in the recent New Mutants 15 through 17 over on 80s Mutant Mania. Yes, it's unfortunate that a mutant all revolving around tarot cards is nowhere to be seen and hasn't been seen for years. Hope she's okay. Love your hair you're not gonna win wait no oh my god no wonder we don't see her no precogs oh 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 no tarot shit. no blindfold no destiny no precogs no Holy I shit. I feel violated! And also electric with fire. There's there's a pill for that. So <laughs> we've seen we've seen tarot cards be used in a lot of X-Men stuff in recent in the recent Dawn of X Hoxpox era. Notably, they've been used in the Hoxpox era. The Opal Luna Saturnine of Free Comic Book Day X-Men number one draws a five-card spread. Five-card spread homily is represented as present, past, future, reason, and potential outcome. Saturnine draws judgment, the four of wands, the hanged man, the eight of cups and of course the ten of swords so just to jump in individually and hopefully we have it all pulled up here because there's a lot to dissect about the art the judgment card sees the summoner minor and apocalypse surrounded by amethyst crystals clearly very reminiscent of his ritual at the end of volume one of excalibur here really just a beautiful scene the four of wands sees war death presumably another one of the horsemen who definitely looks like the egyptian pantheon but not represented in the sword bearers the four of wands card sees definitely the four horsemen and we see death, we see war, we see an undisclosed character who's definitely of the Egyptian pantheon, and we see way in the back, Bay the Blood, uh, referred to as a baptism of blood. The third card, and this is where I'd love to open it up to everybody else here, the Hanged Man. This is fascinating. The text says, Sacris, curious, can any of them be trusted to throw themselves on the pyre of change? Pyre, of course, empire, spelled the same way. But the characters that we see, Polaris, Warren in his archangel getup, Banshee, Richter, Glob Herman, Trinary, Havoc, Beast, and at the forefront, Apocalypse. 
With the way that the Hoxpox Docs era has been going, can any one of these characters be expected to, as the text says, sacrifice themselves or to throw themselves on the pyre of change? Okay, and this is where I think this is all like Teeny and John working like as a singular unit. So much of this for me ties back to some pretty classic stories that I know that Kyle, you also love. I see so much of classic Excalibur in what's going on and not just because of the Saturnine stuff, but oh, holy shit, the Saturnine stuff. But one of the things that the Crosstime Caper gave birth to is Exiles, and Exiles takes place in this big pink universe of crystals that allows people to transport themselves across time and space. And it looks kind of like a pinkish purple version of what the Citadel, the Starlight Citadel, looks like a white version of. And I feel so passionately that this assemblage, this not-quite-Excalibur that we kind of keep being told is Excalibur that's clearly not Excalibur. I am so excited for this next step because I think this is uncharted territory. I cannot figure out why... I mean, a number of these people have already worked with Apocalypse before, but I cannot figure out what it is that Apocalypse is up to yet. And that's kind of what's got me so excited. They keep talking about all this permanent change. Irreversible. What's irreversible? Is Earth going to merge with other worlds? Is Krakoa going to leave this planet? What's fucking happening? To me, it definitely feels like Apocalypse is aiming to make a power grab in Otherworld, and I'm kind of wondering if they are going to be aiming for uh, Saturnine's seat in all this. Speaking of Saturnine, I want to kick it over to Jonah, who's going to take us to the last two cards, picking up on the Eight of Cups. So in the reason spot, Opaluna Saturnine pulls the Eight of Cups, which shows a split of the classified swordsman in what the other half, I'm not sure who that is. But the classified side shows a much darker death side, while the other side is life. So it can possibly be, there's a couple of characters I can possibly think it may be, but not in Egyptian lore. My best guess would be Iris, but that's about as close as I can think of who it might be or what the character might be but it talks about disillusionment and abandonment and someone but almost another form of betrayal i wonder if it might be karima and the last card pulled is the ten of swords which shows an amazing cover of apocalypse young cable wolverine betsy in caps as captain britain and iliana magic as well as five figures in the background who are silhouetted and blacked out one of which i know is basically magneto because of his helmet and nobody else wears a helmet like that but she talks about betrayal and loss and one always expects the sunset after the dawn so this is an inevitable outcome and that's what this card means which we'll get into a little bit more in a bit this is a really interesting card well i only want to comment that you said that that has to be magneto two of the figures i can make out are magneto and wolverine who both have versions in the powers of 10 universe that would match those silhouettes there's storm as well thank you i was gonna say storm and and the lightning is refracted off of her sword i don't know that there's any reason though that these can't be chimeras that this can't be some i don't know why are we keeping so much in shadow that's what i want to know i want to know why so much is kept in shadow because there has to be something we're getting to hickman is building up all mutants into one nation right he's taken all of the bad guy mutants away the bad guy mutants are now threats from inside I can think of a couple of threats that aren't really being explored here. Where's the threat of Warlock? Where's the threat posed by Mr. Sinister? There's a number of things going on that are just not being touched on here. Hickman's setting up a big game, and I wonder who is going to come out the adversaries of Xavier
Savior's dream. Where's the Britter old lady brigade who are botanists and basically the Golden Girls, but like bitchier? I mean, they're human. They don't belong here. No, but they they like they like flowers and stuff, and we haven't seen them for a very long time after they stole Krakow and stuff. I agree. There's so much floral stuff going on right now. It's almost hard to keep track of it all. Well, we're not going to go into detail over what every card actually means in terms of tarot reading. I want to make a specific note of what the Ten of Swords means when it's reversed. If you don't know about tarot really fast, your destiny isn't always uh, set. It's not immalleable. You can change the path that which you walk. So Opal and Saturnine pulled all the cards in the upright position. But the reverse Ten of Swords is about resisting an inevitable fate. It's about surviving and regeneration. And I think that is really, really, really important when it comes to that card being pulled because I don't think those X-Men are going to die. I think it would be a regeneration, a reborn, a reconnaissance, a renaissance, all these different re's. Well, and there's something that I have to ask. There's a lot of magic in the X-Men already. I know the X-Men have never necessarily been like the most sword and sorcery, but the X-Men have known magic. Margali Zardos is specifically a very magical character. Belasco represents a great point in magic. Madeline Pryor represents the embodiment of dark magic among the X-Men, and she is back right now. And where's her ass in all this? And I use the word ass because it would likely be out considering her costumes. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> there's so much magic in the X-Men inherently and that none of it's showing up in the course of this magic except Ileana. I'm, there's just pieces missing. I'm also surprised that if Colossus and Ileana are both running around, we haven't seen much of Mikhail. For those who aren't aware, Mikhail Rasputin could be a stand-in for Jamie. He is the third less popular sibling of two mutant siblings, one of whom has an artificially changed body, the other whom is a super strong male. He is the reality warping sibling who was believed dead and is older and famous in some regard. I mean, literally, it's that note for note. Whereas Jamie was a race car driver who has the power to warp reality, Mikhail was a cosmonaut who has the power to warp reality. What is it with the X-Men and having older brothers that they're like, oh. Well, I mean, siblings of any kind that are kind of like, oh, because like, you know, you've got Vulcan who's kind of like, you know, things that make you go, oh. And you know what? I've got to be honest. If you were Wanda and Pietro and one day someone came over and said to you guys Lorna's your sister wouldn't you be like oh and then later on if you were Lorna and Wanda wouldn't you be like oh Pietro's coming for dinner oh thank you oh (laughs) and then later on when Wanda commits genocide I feel like Wanda's the odd man out and then I'm pretty sure there came a day where none of them were his children anymore okay I have a deep cut Lois London Lois London, yeah, Dazzler's shitty half-sister. She has the power to touch people to death. What? Yeah, she has, she has a death touch, and um, so Dazzler's sister can touch you to death, and that's that's a power, man. If she touches you, you die. There's not touch you to death. There's a difference in that. I think you're splitting hairs. You know, evil siblings, it's such a soap opera thing, and if anybody thinks for a moment that comic books aren't just a soap opera, you know, soap operas got their name from back when soap companies were so powerful in media and with their advertising because soap is such a ubiquitously used product that in sponsoring daytime programming, they came to be known as soap operas so we call things really soapy you know and comic books have always been really soapy they developed in a similar time to the popularity and the popularization of soap operas on television so there is an inextricable romance and you know the romance comic origin secret siblings really fits that motif
so much of that is kind of like the same stuff that Dan Slott's employing in Empire. And maybe that's what kind of made Empire number one feel uneven for me. It's not that I thought Empire number one was bad per se, but I kind of feel like if you had cut together the two Empire number zeros, I shouldn't have to say that. An Empire number one into one super Empire number one, like an Empire 1.25 or something, I might have liked it a bit more because that part when Quinoa stood up and said, we shall all be pot. I got very confused. Well, now I'm confused. Well, okay, I'm being silly, but the book was a little on the predictable and yet, wait, what's happening side? Not that Dan Slott didn't do a great job, but Maddie, what did you think? You know, I gotta be honest, I, and I'm down for the flowering, 100%. I I came to about the, the end of the second act of this issue, and I said, wait, where's the twist? Everything was wrapping up a little bit too neatly like a one-issue story, and I think that it was a little too reliant on the two number zeros in Avengers Fantastic Four to set the stage so that this story felt a little less thin than it actually was. That said, I like the dual narratives between Tony and I like that they used Reed as a means to juxtapose Tony's burgeoning fate-based decision-making against the absolute rationals. They're injecting so much mysticism into Empire 2, whether it's the fact that Sequoia is kind of like magical, or Tony's been having these visions of the future. There's just, I don't know, and you know, Kyle, you actually read Fantastic 421, I think? I did, yes. And it kind of gave us a third perspective of what was going on at the same exact time. So it kind of filled the missing pieces, I guess. It gave us Franklin and Valeria's side of things, since they they got pretty much ejected from uh, the Fantastic Four's ship. So for those who aren't aware, Empire had a number of tie-ins cut, not resolicited, or merged into other things. So a number of the original parts of Empire have had to fall by the wayside, sort of like we've belied and been miserable over Vita's Children of the Atom being currently nowhere on the schedule. I find that it kind of sounds like you're saying that was a tie-in that really couldn't afford to be cut. And from your description, that might have helped out what I feel has been missing from this narrative. I don't think Hulkling has any agency in this story like he is a prop he might as well be a crown did I miss something where Hulkling had a storyline anywhere Jonah did you see Teddy have a personality in incoming or any of his minor references in the zeros or this did I miss where Hulkling the fact that they're touting out this strong queer character has all of this storyline did I miss where he had any agency or personality no I was really confused as to where the story was going because it feels like so much of it was missing I have not read a lot of Young Avengers or the other appearances of Teddy but it feels like it was rushed like it all of this happened off screen great no that doesn't no it feels like Teddy was a complete pawn in all of this which is weird because I get it it might have been for a setup but it just comes across as bizarre a little bit lazy and just confusing I, I am not the biggest fan of Teddy I've only really seen him in incoming that's really about it uh, I don't particularly care for him. It's great that he's gay and openly queer and visible, and I love that. But and Sagreen. But where is Wiccan? On yeah. Earth crying that his boyfriend left him. And speaking of green, everybody thought that Sequoia was kind of fucking creepy evil in Zero. We all said it. So was this meant to be a reveal of any kind? To it was, people. It was completely predictable. I mean, I called a lot of things about this uh, when we were reading the Zero books. 
You know, can I just say, I think there's two things that I really liked about this issue, and I think the fact that they have nothing to do with the issue itself is really a testament to what we're talking about today, but I loved that Jen Walters had her kind of Hulk psyche restored by way of Crystal working. I thought it was really cool that we're we're seeing like Crystal and, and metaphysics represented in comics as a, as a big old witch. And that said, Ghost Rider turning the Quinjet into his ghost ghost vehicle it was phenomenal definitely love the dual pen and stare in space but if that's all that really stood out to me what is the purpose of continuing reading this crossover my whole thing about this is i understand franklin's low on power but i'm pretty sure he could have said all right here's the universe everything's exactly the same except for this crease girl war never happened they never met and they're not biologically engineered to be warriors done and- okay and i hear you i do but do you know what happened the last time somebody did that house of m uh... or no, I'm sorry, way more recently than that. Gamora stole the Infinity Stones and caused the Infinity Warps, which was characters got combined in like an amalgam way, but I misread it the first time I read it and I wasn't really paying attention to the cover and stuff. And I thought it said Infinity Wraps and I thought they were doing like a line of sandwich variants. <laughs> and I was- Universe where everybody just works at Subway. Yeah, I kind of thought it was like, hey, everybody welcome to Moe's. And, and like- just works at Subway and Moe's. And yeah. actually have, that's why they fight. Yeah. Because yeah. they're across the street, they're star-crossed. They're star-crossed sandwich lovers. <laughs> can I get a soul spinach wrap with pesto? Um, yes, and uh, can I get the Infinity Stone soft drink combo with a side of cosmic fries? And a large Coke. Well, and speaking of large Coke, I don't know how much Coke it took to come up with uh, Ghost Quinjet, but my God, was it one of my favorite things. Robbie Reyes has turned out to be one of the best things about the Marvel Universe in the last five years for me, and I really did love that, and yeah, Jen Walter's getting her agency back was also spectacular. I'm a little nervous because we know she's getting an Immortal She-Hulk one-shot and the Immortal Hulk is a body horror horror title and I believe she's getting her one-shot as the Immortal Hulk is wrapping up its run. So I am a little nervous there. I also wonder how much of this would have played out in some of the tie-ins. Like what of these scenes were maybe originally meant to play out in some of the cut tie-ins and here we were supposed to get a panel and one of those neat little Tom Brevoort text boxes that says check out Ghost Rider number one. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Do you think that with the announcement that some of these titles have been changed or had been dropped, that they would have had time to update the art and text to reflect that? I do. I think if they were secretly doing this over time but didn't want to cancel things till the last second, I think, you know, perhaps maybe this is a little bit of incoming number one and a little bit of incoming number two and a little bit of uh, a couple of pages of another thing and a little bit of script from something else. Okay, that makes sense. Manny, I know, you, I know you said that you enjoyed the narration split between Reed and Tony. I actually found it kind of distracting because these characters are in the now and hearing just their thoughts as opposed to everybody else's who's there and also playing a role in important feels kind of like Reed and Tony are the only important characters really need to focus on besides Sue because Sue is obviously god pure powerful and like, oh my goodness, gracious me, oh my. You know, I, I think it's an and it's a credit to what you're saying i think the dual narrative is a vehicle for stringing together what is otherwise a very thin plot with an otherwise large cast of characters with an otherwise little amount to do so far we see t'challa utilized briefly facing off against the super scroll again jen and walters gets her agency back uh captain marvel issues a warning tony shakes sequoia's hand but otherwise there's really not a lot going on so for me i feel like i would have been more 
more distracted if there had been more dialogue or more, you know, thought bubbles thrown into her. I thought so much of this was dominated by two-page splashes and big over-the-top work that maybe I don't associate with slot normally, but I liked it a lot visually. I thought the art was really what kept this moving a little bit tighter than the story narrative. I think what we're talking about where where is there room for all these other characters? That's why they're that's why the nature of comic crossovers is what it is. We all want to see everybody we love in every storyline. If you told me that the plants were killing people, oh no, but that the X-Men who are doing nothing but fighting plants like they're the DEA in the war on marijuana circa Nancy Reagan, I never would have believed you, which is why it's important that we're getting X-Men Empire. But now I am saying to myself, the plants are killing people, oh no, and look at the mutant. Also, to bring up the art, how does everybody feel about Ben being plant gagged and then having a plant rip through half of his body? I was really into it. Uh, That's actually what really stood out to me on the last page there. I thought it was pretty dynamic and horrifying. It definitely reminds me of the last X-Force that we read with Quentin. I think this crossover for me is kind of calling to mind Fear Itself. Fear Itself was not the world's most popular crossover. It was helmed initially by Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction, though Brubaker left at that time. He was transitioning in his career to a more writing scripts for media production based on his independent comics and wound up having to drop Fear Itself. It was meant to be kind of like a the Avengers Prime trio piece and it wound up shifting a little bit, but I- I'm getting a lot of bits of that where it's sort of like these foreign powers all coming at once. I don't know that I understand the Sequoia plot yet. And I think that's actually really central to what's going on. Sequoia and the Kotati claim that they are the Avengers now. Okay, well, I can say that I'm a PlayStation 7, but it doesn't mean that I can play Final Fantasy 46 on my face. You know what I mean? So what do you guys think is going to come of this statement? For my sake, I think Sequoia has a plan to unleash like a flower kingdom on earth and it's going to be up to things like Krakoa to resist. Krakoa is going to have an opportunity to be mutants in the new world order and I think they got to put up a fight and help the actual Avengers stop the Flavengers. You know but then in that case doesn't that kind of fly in the face of our, our current criticisms of the X universe at large in their involvement in so many flora based adversaries and also the number of characters that we see here in Empire between the Fantastic Four Avengers being so underutilized. I think for sure Mutant World or Krakoa definitely needs to put up a strong front against a Kotati invasion of Earth. Absolutely. But I just wonder if bringing X-Men into gray here, as we know, is going to intersect with Ten of Swords just by virtue of when when everything comes out. I think it's, it's going to get a little bit muddled and I'm afraid to see where a story that's already muddled in its first issue can go. Knowing that we for sure have seven issues by John Hickman that tie into Empire before Ten of Swords comes out has me a little jumpy. Jonah, this is your first time doing double crossovers. You just got like a crossover in both hands and you're just like mouth open. Ah, crossovers. Ah. Talk to me about this shower of crossovers and how you're handling double fisting the books. They're trying to Eiffel Tower me about this and I'm just gonna say I'm not really into it because I don't think either of them were them to be. So you're saying you're not looking to get airtight on these crossovers. 
universe. Correct. My feeling with these... Okay, here's the thing with crossovers. Whether it's Contest of Champions or Secret Wars, it's no stranger that we have problems with crossovers because not everybody's going to get their fair shake. I will say I am actually interested in where this leads to the marriage of Tony Stark and Emma Frost only because it's my Emma Frost and I have to see why she's marrying Tony Stark. Of all the people she can marry, I'm right here, Emma. I mean, they dated once before, so it just makes sense that they would... I don't know. I guess it makes... I'm into it. I'm really into it and maybe I just loved Histmu too much, but we're already seeing things from Histmu happen. As it is, we know about the King in Black. We're going to get a Null crossover in December, which I believe is the next Space Age crossover following Empire. What I really wish for Empire is non-cliche storylines and bring something new. Give a real reason for this crossover as opposed to just Teddy kind of being misled. You know, I think we've given this book a lot of grief, but I think as Nico has pointed out and as we've discussed, it is still something of a feat to have gotten these two number zeros and this number one out to us in spite of the state of the world and the state of delays and merging of other various tie-ins that were supposed to happen. So just to give credit where credit's due, I just wanted to say that Al Ewing and Dan Slott did a fantastic job with the story and that Valerio Shidi and Marte Gracia really carried the book at all. There was one other thing that I forgot to mention in Fantastic Four number 21, there is yet another plant-focused cult on Earth that seems to be connected to the Kotati, and they have been put into motion to assassinate the two Creek child and the Skrull child that the Fantastic Four uh, rescued. Joven and Nakala. Yes, yes, them. We're seeing so many plant things that it's just kind of... How much more plant things can we deal with? (laughs) To kick from plants to machines for a moment, I picked up I Wolverine 2020 number one. For those who are unfamiliar, this is the story of LCD and Albert, two Wolverine characters from the Larry Hama era, being continued now. It was picked up in the pages of the Search for Wolverine, the Hunt for Wolverine, a few years back, and here they find themselves tying into the Iron Man 2020 event, also helmed by Dan Slott. Dan Slott has so much going on, and it kind of makes sense. The guy was used to writing four books books a month for Amazing Spider-Man, so he needs something to keep his excited comic book fanboy hands busy. Dan Slott also is known for his incredible time on She-Hulk, so it's not shocking to me that he would kind of require that She-Hulk have her faculties if he's writing her. As a longtime LCD and Albert fanboy, I loved this issue, although I think, Kyle, you mentioned that not having as much context maybe made this a tougher read for you. It very much was a very confusing read for me. I mean, looking at the read order at the back of the book, it's obvious that this is the end of a miniseries. So without having any kind of connection to these particular characters, the only thing that really stood out to me was Pierce and his Reavers. And I'm like, oh, I know them. But other than that, it really didn't inspire me to want to read more. So I think that's a a big round of yes from a longtime Albert LCD fan and a new guy to the party says you know what as the new guy to the party this just didn't make me want to keep partying and I think that's a pretty good way to look at it you know there's things that we all kind of attach to that when we look back maybe we're like ah that might be harder for somebody to get into so if you're a longtime Albert and LCD fan grab it and if you 
you're on the fence, we say you might want to skip this one. Or at least wait until it shows up on Marvel Unlimited. However, if you choose to skip Giant Size X-Men Magneto, you might want to crush your own toes with a hammer. It was such a charming little Magneto adventure story. I don't know what's going to come of it, what's going to come of the acquisition of the island for Emma, but, you know, if we're going to jump into Giant Size Magneto, let's do it right here. Uh, Writer Jonathan Hickman, artist Ramon Perez, color artist David Curiel, with letterer VCs Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller, and cover by Ben Oliver. Only three characters in the entire book, Magneto, Namor, and Emma. How do we all feel about this? It's always a Kraken. It's always a Kraken. (laughs) So this issue had, this issue had everything, really. I, there's no other way to describe it, but you got to get full Stefan. Magneto, rewind. John Hickman said, I'm going to release five giant size issues and they're going to be about these characters. But he really pulled a beautiful wool over our eyes and made us reevaluate what we think because giant size Jean Grey and Emma Frost was less a story about Jean Grey and Emma Frost than it was a love song to Storm through the lens of new X-Men. Then, giant size Nightcrawler really was an ode to Warlock and Doug through the lens of classic man's stories. Here, we have a Magneto issue that's actually a tribute to the Matt Fraction era where Namor and Emma had their flirt on all the time and lived on an island taking care of mutant kind. Hickman is much more clever than I even gave him credit for despite having read his Avengers, S.H.I.E.L.D. and Fantastic Four prior to this. The web he's weaving makes it clear that there is no X-Man who is an island. You can't look at Jean Grey and Emma Frost alone. You have to look at them in terms of Storm, even the Black Panther, and New X-Men. Here, we get to look at Magneto and what it means to Emma Frost, who is the second generation Magneto for all intents and purposes. What it means to Namor, another 1960s villain turned good guy. The levels on which this book thrived for me, this thing fucking banged. You know, I think it was such a love song to Magneto as we were covering in a recent episode of HTML covering the Fantastic Four cartoon series from the 1960s-70s, Magneto appears similar to how he did in the books of the times as the very, I'm going to get you and I'm, I'm, I'm bad and I'm bad for being bad. And no, no, I'm sorry, but now I'm going to write a Gilbert and Sullivan X-Men musical. I, I, I am the Magnet King. I, yes. I must stop you rolling along, rolling along, we roll along. I love it. Gilbert and Sullivan pop musical. Um, Oh yeah, no, this was going to be a, oh no, no, like 1960s, very beachy because uh, it's 1960s and they're at Cape Canaveral. Oh, did I not mention it would be set in X-Men number one? Yeah, no, no, no. At Cape Canaveral, (laughs) Florida at a beach. So it would have been a Gilbert and Sullivan surf musical. Oh, my love for you grows fonder. It's at the heart of this book. I, I really feel like this was such a love song to Magneto as a character and how a character who at one time was so volatile has been softened by the recent events of the House of Powers of X and has transitioned into something of the the grandfather of, as Nico pointed out, the next generation, that of Emma Frost, someone willing to make sacrifice of his time and, and put himself into a difficult position, which is bartering for time with a king and facing off against a kraken just for his his success. I, I think seeing Magneto's restraint in this was, was a thing of beauty. We've seen Magneto have a soft spot for Emma 
for many years now, and I think they're quite close when it comes to friends. I mean, he even gave her a classroom on Genosha before that was, you know, <laughs> thanks, Cassandra. You know, he really did. That's a fascinating fucking point. And like, that's such a, ooh, I just want to make out with that and you. So when Cassandra Nova had the triple sentinel strike on Genosha in New X-Men 114 to 116, E is for Extinction by Grant Morrison, she was teaching on Genosha where Magneto was king. He must have hired her. I, okay. I want to see that interview. I, God damn. So it doesn't surprise me that Magneto will be willing to do favors for Emma or even vice versa because I know Emma is a very reliable person at least now. But I also thought this uh, appearance of Namor was actually pretty palatable and like interesting. And it makes me happy to know that when Namor will be waging war against the land dwellers because Ocean is, you know, being polluted and him being, you know, hot. Will Susan be there? <laughs> I was honestly just think that. And you know, Susan in outer space so nobody can come rein him in. I really am appreciative that at least Namor is civil with the mutants because I know his mutancy is a hot button topic, whether he's Atlantean, mutant Atlantean, whatever it may be. I found this really nice to see like, okay, they're civil and they may even work together in the future. I really like that Emma is pretty much one of the only reasons that Namor would actually agree to assist the mutants in this current timeline. So that kind of made me happy to see that there's that kind of connection with him, even though things are still strained between the two civilizations. And not to be like all poly on everything, but there's, I mean, if you don't think that Namor's always been poly, like, I don't know, do seahorses have rules on monogamy so like if you don't think that emma is just gonna be like scott i had the most banging time with namor i think the only thing he would say is number one that's really hot number two i just want to be sure you used a blowfish skin right <laughs> sorry <laughs> From from blowfish skins to sentinel heads, I just wanted to talk about one of the last splash pages that pops up here in Giant Size Magneto. I assume this is one of the Cassandra Nova Genosian sentinel heads. That's what I was I thinking. Thought, I thought he just made the symbol out of it from the cargo ship. Why not? He can make it. Yeah. It's Magneto. Yeah. He can do what the fuck he please. Oh, so Magneto just, just straight up sculpted himself in uh, an, <laughs> an Omega Sentinel head. Bold of you to assume Emma did not have strict requirements of what he had to build. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. No, this was this was all by her design, no matter where it came from. And I wanted to have my mother's third nose. So Jesus. So one of the things that I I asked Nico after we both read this was if this might have been some kind of memorial to Genosha. That's definitely the vibe that I get here, and I wonder how much of it will be under Magneto's jurisdiction, considering that, not not so much jurisdiction, not to say that he would take an authoritarian role, but, you know, I, I wonder if this is to serve the specific interests of the White Queen and the Hellfire Trading Company, or if this is meant to be something for, for mutants at large. And, you know, it's that question, the motives, that kind of goes to the heart of what made this issue really special for me. We have three very different kinds of reformed villains here. We have Namor, who believes he is truly the inheritor of the Earth and that humans are an inferior offshoot of his species. We have 
Magneto, who for a very long time believed that he was the superior offshoot of humanity. And we have Emma Frost, who, look, Emma Frost loves being a mutant and she's proud of being a mutant, but Emma Frost wants to be rich more than she wants to be a mutant. Let's not fuck around. She wants to be powerful more than she wants to be a mutant. She loves being a mutant. That's just what she is. That's not what this is about. This is about power. And there are three very different kinds of reformed villains, if for no other reason. Those determining factors. Of these three reformed villains, I would say the kind of villain I am most drawn to does tend to be Emma. And But the character I love the most of these three is Magneto. So I guess if you're giving me a fuck, marry, kill here, I'm, I'm going to fuck Emma, I'm going to marry Magneto, and I'm going to kill Namor. Hmm. I think I'm going to... I think I'm going to fuck Emma, marry Magneto, kill Namor. Yeah, that's just a really hard fuck, marry, kill not to just Emma, Magnus, Namor, Emma, Magnus, Namor, fuck, marry, kill. Like, it's really hard not to. Like, does anybody want to fuck Namor here? With or without the ankle wings? No, no, like, if you only had the one choice, but yes, with the ankles. Okay, well, either way, the answer is no. They stay on. <laughs> okay, but the wings stay on. <laughs> I mean, I don't not want to fuck Namor. Like, that's for sure. I don't not want to fuck Namor. But if this is my choice, one, two, three, bing, bang, boom, I'm I'm going to bing, bang, boom them in that order. I'd marry Emma because I know she would treat me right. Um, I'd have plenty of money. And then I'd be an adoptive stepfather to like seven kids. So actually probably plenty more. I'm pretty sure Emma is at least adopted. I don't know how many mutants at this point. I'd fuck Magneto because Magneto's hot and he's always been hot. And for some reason, he just never ages. And when he does, they make him a baby again so that he can get old again. He's a baby. Hi, I'm baby Magneto. I'm a baby. And then I'd fuck Namor, but I'd have to kill him ass. So basically I'm a praying man. Okay, so you're just switching the Emma Magnus. Yeah. Kyle, Kyle, this comes down to you. Are you going to keep Namor alive, or does your heart and other places lie elsewhere? Um, no, I'm not going to keep Namor alive because I think that anything that would happen between the two of us would involve him looking down on me in revile um he would require a lot of mirrors yeah. and it has nothing to do with you he just needs to look right past you at himself all the time yeah i think i would i would marry emma and fuck magneto yeah sure yeah i don't think it could really go any other way like namor thank you for appearing namor we've loved having you on the show friend of the pod namor but uh i think we've all just decided you're about to sleep with the fishes buddy sashay away no i was trying to do sashimi Sashimi. <laughs> you know, thank you. Salmon on. Oh, it wasn't good, but Kyle, thank you. You're um, you know, I can I so can I point out something that must have been intentional about the last few pages here of Giant Size Magneto? I I think, and it's to the credit of Jonathan Hickman and Ramon Perez, uh, in the in the background of what we're seeing here, as we can credit to be New Genosha, there are puffins in panel, and puffins are exclusive only to the North Atlantic, as we know from the pages of House and Powers. Krakoa Primary sits in the Pacific, so I know it may seem innocuous at first, given that there are Krakoan portals not only all over the globe but in in other world and on moon but i do think there is something to be said about the fact that the mutants are gaining land oh absolutely especially with so much of what we're talking about being the land has come alive you know the plants are dominating this narrative right now it's not just a little bit planty this is plant life to the extreme the vegans have finally won who knew they could be made happy and we're taking a look at a very different kind of marvel universe the marvel 
Parallel Universe used to consume itself and concern itself primarily with bad guys with guns, lasers, and evil brains. From there, it became corporations and ideologues. For a while, it became fear of the hive mind, gray goo, and ourselves. It looks like now, we're taking a look at fearing nature, the thing that we've always overlooked as just part of our lives and part of the cycle of existence. The X-Men have always been so consumed and concerned with evolution, they've forgotten to look at where they've come from, looking only at where they're going as part of the human race. I think we're entering not just a new age of X-Men, but I believe we're entering the end of a phase. Perhaps you might call it a sunset of X. Kyle, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. How about you, Maddie? Uh, well, if you're also terrified about the secret police in Portland, Oregon, you can find me on Instagram at, at the basely covetous man. Jonah, where can everybody find you? Not rooting for Flora the Destroyer on the blue side of the moon because I don't care for that storyline. We'll see. On Twitter and Instagram at Heek Jonah. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me eating at Cat Cora the Destroyer's restaurant. No. You guys can find me all over this amazing network on html currently covering fantastic four with like a little bit of all of these people it's very exciting when we get back to star wars we'll of course be having kyle and the amazing steven back on the program Woo-hoo. in the interim don't forget to check out the sh- all the feeds of this show as we cover all the different facets of x-men comics you can also find me over on twitter and instagram where i am kind of active on uh, nico action n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n guys remember this is a big year we have an election coming up and the most powerful thing you can do is arm yourself with knowledge it's a lot of fun to read comics but it's more fun to read the news and understand what's going on in the world around you vote like your friends lives depend on it black lives matter and we need to do better by the people of our country remember that we can make it better and until we come back to do so guys keep this mutant lights lit bye